Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. <clears throat> We've gone with Joseph, Joseph several years, and we're picking up from last time which brings us uh, about nine years later, actually, than the last chapter. Uh, last chapter, he was uh, 30 when he was made governor by the Pharaoh. And now seven years of plenty have, uh, have gone by, and now we're into the second year of seven years of famine. So that's where we're picking up tonight in chapter 42. You know, I always tell students it's nice to know the right answers to questions. But I said sometimes in certain contexts it's more important to ask the right questions because until you have the right questions you really uh, cannot look for the right answers because you don't even know what you're looking for. I can ask any question at all and come up with any answer at all. I mean, the Internet's full of them, questions that are really irrelevant or, or you know, just innocuous of what's going on. And you can have answers out the wazoo, but it really doesn't make any difference. Tonight I want to talk about four right questions. The questions are not necessarily maybe not intended to be right. Maybe uh, uh, some of them were from a reaction. But every one of them is a right question. And we'll, we'll wrap it up uh, toward the end and, and I'll let you know what's, where, where we're heading with that. The first question is, why do you just keep looking at each other. I love this. I love this one. One, verse one through about halfway through uh, verse seven. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? I can just imagine this. You know, these, these, all these guys are just sitting there looking at each other and nobody's doing anything about it. He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. So he sent ten of his sons down there. Now, let's just think about this just a second and, and understand. This is the second year, and you're going to learn that as we go through. This is the second year of the famine. And food is running dangerously short. I don't know if you know about it or, or anything, but every once in a while I can say... I am just famished. But you know what? I bet you a dollar I could go a little longer without food. But there comes a point. There comes a point during a famine, particularly, that food is not just a passing indifference. Food is a life and death situation. And this reminds me a little bit and it, it, it is humorous in a way, it reminds me a little bit about parents and summer vacation. It takes 
until the second day. I love it. Teachers have put up with these children all year long. The second day of summer vacation, what do parents do? Go out here and do something, you know, get out of the house, you know, you're driving me crazy. Do something. And that's what he's telling them. It's like, it's like children, they're just sitting around. I'm, I'm sitting here starting to get very, very hungry. All these guys, I'm a taking it, or most of them have families. They're hungry. They're getting hungry. It's, it's, it's to a pretty urgent situation, and no one's doing anything. They're just looking around, and you've got to do something. You've got to take the initiative. The predicament is grave, and no one is doing a thing. So he gives a directive. Dad to the rescue here. He gives a directive, go down, buy some grain for us, or we're going to die. You know, we need to live. It's, it's the best thing here that we, that we live. Quick little lesson here. Quick little lesson here. Understand that every time, every time, every time, trust is used in the Bible in a biblical sense, not trusting in human beings or trusting in, you know, military might or whatever it is. I'm talking about in a biblical God trust sense, it is always accompanied by action. Always. James talks about that when he talks about faith in action, obedience in action, trust in action, all the time, all the time, all the time. Pursue avenues. God will provide. Or God may shut the door. But we continue to pursue avenues and pray that if this is your will, open the door for me. Open a door of opportunity for me. Open a, a, open a possibility here. But if it's not your will, shut the door. But I'm going to take in the initiative and I'm going to be praying to you and I'm, I'm walking in the light. I'm, I'm trying to develop this relationship with you and I'm taking an initiative here but you open and close the doors. I'm going to trust in you to do that. I'm going to trust you to be there. Uh, if you want to write down something around this, Psalm 37, verse 3. Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. You don't sit there. It, it's, it, it can't be one or the other. It's got to be both. I can do good, do good, do good, do good. All the, all the while, I'm not trusting in God, and I, I'm just paying lip service to this. Or I'm going to say I trust in God, and I'm just going to sit here and let God you know, do everything. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. Trust in God and do good. He sent ten of his kids, ten of his sons, to Egypt. Not 11. Remember, there's an 11th child, Benjamin, the youngest. By the way, I called him a child. You realize at this point, think about it just a second. Let's, let's, let's do, some, do some mental math. 
Joseph was how old when he was sold as a slave? 17. Okay. He was how old when he became governor? Last chapter. 30. So that's 13 years. Okay. They have been away from him 13 years when he became governor. Seven more years of plenty. 20. Two years into the famine. 22. He has been away from them for 22 years. 22 plus 17 is 39 years old. This guy's 39 years old. Benjamin don't know how old he is, but he's not a child. Okay? He's not a child. He's at least in his 20s, maybe in his 30s. So that's very important in this particular uh, situation because we're talking about a grown man here and he's afraid. Jacob is afraid to let Benjamin go. He is afraid to let Benjamin go. And, uh, and, and here they go and he says, he says, I'm afraid that he'll uh, be harmed, verse 4. Verse 4. So he sends the 10 down there, not the 11, but the 10. And they go. And in verse 6, they meet Joseph the governor. Now, I don't know if it's just foreigners. The Bible talks about all the people had to come before Joseph. That would be a, 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 quite an quite a undertaking for Joseph. But, uh, but at least foreigners had to come before him and to be able to trade within the land. So they come before Joseph... And they do not recognize him, but he recognizes them. And what do they do? Verse 6, they bow down with their faces to the ground. They bow down with their faces to the ground. It's interesting. It's interesting. Here they are, and you're sitting there, and you're already anticipating the next section when he remembers his dreams. They are doing exactly what the dreams by God uh, said. Now, they did not expect to see Joseph. I figure they didn't expect to see Joseph, you know, for the rest of their lives, but they certainly wouldn't expect him to be here now. Now, stop just a second. Let's think about this just very quickly. Can we use the word coincidence here? No. This is God's design. This is God's design. God has designed all of this, and it's very interesting how he has put this together. They bow down, they fulfill the dreams that they had, and it says that he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke to them harshly. Now, stop just a minute. Don't make quick judgments against Joseph right now. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying there's a reason for that. So, first question. What do you, what do you, why are you just sitting there looking at each other? Do something. Something needs to be done. Okay? Second question. Second question, verses 7b through 20. Where did you come from? 
It's, it's the, it's the uh, second part of the uh, verse 7. Where did you come from? Joseph is asking this as the governor of what's going on. He recognizes them, like I said, and think about it just a minute. If he is 39, his brothers are older. So some of these guys are middle-aged, you know, 40s, maybe 50s. I mean, there are 10 of them older than him. So these guys may be a little older here. They're weathered. Their hair is graying or loosening. One of the two, you know. I think that they probably are harried a little bit because they have carried around a 22-year-old secret sin of the way they treated Joseph. And he was made not to be recognizable. First of all, he pretended to be a stranger. Second of all, he was talking harshly to them. His voice had changed over that time. His language obviously had changed. He's speaking Egyptian through an interpreter. So they don't even know he knows Hebrew. They don't even know he knows their language. His appearance must be striking in all his finery. It's just a totally different world. And another thing is this. People were basically taught, don't look at these major officials in the face. You keep your head down because you are subject to these people. So I don't know that the brothers even had a good look at him. But regardless, regardless, it said, verse 8, or they said, we're from the land of Canaan, we're here to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them. He remembered the dreams I don't know if God, it doesn't, it doesn't record it here, we're not sure uh, where, where this came from, this idea of the test. Okay, Now he's calling it a test to determine their honesty if they're spies or not. But this test is on two levels. Okay, He is doing this test and telling them that they are being tested in a physical sense, but there's something far, and I started to say higher than that, or you can say deeper than that, whichever, whichever uh, way you want to take this idea. But there is another test that he's going to perform for them. And he's going to require them, and it's going to seem very harsh to them. Okay? It's going to seem very harsh, but there is a reason There is a reason. Number one, he is going to ascertain whether they are regretting, whether they are guilty, whether they have any sorrow at all for how they've treated him. And he's going to set up a test to find that out. Number two, number two, He is going to set up a loyalty test to find out if they'll sell out one another. I mean, basically, that's what they did to him. 
was it not? They betrayed him, a brother in this family. So if the situation lends itself, are they going to band together and look out for one another, or is it kind of like each each to his own? You know, you're on your own kind of thing. And you, you know about that. You know about that. And number three, he is going to set up a test to find out if their attitude toward Benjamin is the same as they had toward him when they sold him into slavery. So that's the three things that they're looking for, he's looking for. How do they feel about Joseph and about the actions that they took? How is their loyalty toward one another? And how is their attitude toward Benjamin? Now, let's look at it just a minute. He calls them spies. He said, you are just trying to come out and into the land to find out if we are unprotected. Unprotected. In verse 11, they start, they start saying, or 10 and 11, no, 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 no. They're protesting their innocence. And you've got to understand, you've got to understand in this test that there are going to be some parallels here. Every time I say they are protesting their innocence, what did Joseph do? He protested his innocence. Okay? So they are going to... Joseph is going to have a big mirror. And he is going to make them look at themselves. It's going to be an incredibly deep, conscience-stricken, memory-remembering time for them. And he's setting up this idea. He's setting up this idea. And, And... Are they going to be the kind of people you want them to be? And he says, no, we are all sons of one guy. We're honest men. And verse 13 is interesting. Your servants were 12. The youngest one stayed home with the dad, and one is no more. Who are they talking to? Mr. No More. <laughs> Mr. No More. There is an irony to all of what's going on here. They are protesting, and he's wanting to know, are they going to stay loyal to one another? Are they going to be united in this thing? Are they going to start fragmenting? And he calls them spies again. He starts, he starts this relentless thing, continuing to apply pressure. Because a lot of times, your circumstance is going to allow people reveal who you are. Okay? The circumstance, particularly a pressurized circumstance, is going to reveal exactly who you are. Because you can, you can fake it for a lot of times, but you, you, you've got to figure out that, that pressure is going to come out. It was interesting that they thought that Joseph was a spy for his dad. So he is simply turning the tables here and calling them spies. 
Of course, he wasn't a spy, and of course, they're not spies. But that's the test. That's the test. And you know what? It's weird. When you are guilty about something, you always be, are, are going to be defensive. But here they are, here they are, and they are looking. He's making a powerful appeal to them. So he said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. <clears throat> we're going to take you all into custody and put you in jail. Okay? Done. Done. Second in command. Nobody, nobody sneezes without Joseph's permission. And Joseph said, all of you, all ten of you, jail now. And it happened. He gives them three days, three days to think about this. Three days to think, I am being accused falsely. I am being mistreated. It's what Joseph had to go through. This is nothing compared to what Joseph had to do. But, of course, they didn't know the outcome. They didn't know the outcome. So he goes down and he says, verse 18, On the third day Joseph said to them, I gotta, I, 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 I'm going to do this. You, you do this and you'll live. Because I fear God. Now some commentators say that that just means he was trying to tell them he's a religious person. Some commentators say that he was trying to, to uh, uh, connect with them in the fact that he was a true believer in God. It, it, it doesn't make it clear here. We know what he means. The brothers may not have, but we know what he means. And he says, if you're honest... This is, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to change the plan. I'm going to be much more compassionate towards you. And I'm going to keep one brother and nine of you can go home and carry the grain for your families. Okay? We're, gonna, we're going to let you go home and I'm going to keep one brother but... Your younger brother has to come, or you're not going to see your brother in prison again. You're not going to see him again. So that's the compassionate proposal. Rather than all, all stay in there and one go home, he's going to keep one and let the nine go home. Where do you come from? Number three. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? 21 through 24. They said to one another, now here it comes, okay? Here's the brothers. Here it comes. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben replied, firstborn, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them because he was using an interpreter. 
And he turned away from them and began to weep. But he turned back and spoke to them again. And he had Simeon taken and bound before their eyes. This has got to be something of an unusual situation. I want you to think about it just a moment. They're being, they think they're being punished by God about what's going on. They've been given three days to think about this thing. And the problem is they actually deserve to suffer for what they've done. But they're admitting their guilt. And they're not realizing that Joseph is able to understand them. So Reuben comes in. Reuben, I got to tell you something. Reuben just rubs me the wrong way for some reason. I don't know what it is. But Reuben comes in with the I told you so. Reuben is a nice fellow in that he's trying to save his uh, brother. And he warned them not to sin. He uh, told them, you know, we're, we're, this is all because what we've done. You wouldn't listen. Now we're being held accountable. It seems as though chapter 37 does not go into, I mean, it implies here that he said more than what was recorded in chapter 37. So I'm not sure about that, but, but the idea is here. Will this soften their hearts? And he overheard everything that was going on, and he wept. This is... The first time that he has heard about Reuben. This is the first time he's heard about Reuben. Because remember, they went away, uh, away from him when Reuben was suggesting this. So it was interesting how that all came about. They... He is getting the idea that they truly are regretting what happened. They may just have truly repented. So he's, this test has brought him the first inkling of the answer to, to how they feel about him. It seems that they are sorrowful. Now, you're still not 100% sure if they're just sorry that they got caught or if they've really changed, so he's going to continue going this. And he brings Simeon. Now stop just a second, and let's, let's recount the first four sons of Israel. Jacob, okay? The first one is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Okay? I want you to remember those four. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Who gets taken into captivity? Simeon. So I'm sitting there thinking, maybe Joseph is get, letting uh, Reuben have a bye here, because why? At least Reuben kept me alive, kept him from killing me, you know, and, and the whole story behind that was what? He was going to come back and do what? to get him and take him home to his dad. Probably to make up for sleeping with the concubine, but we're not going there. Question number four. What is this that God has done to us? Verses 25 through 38. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, 
put each man's silver back in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. And they did so. So they've got their sacks full of grain. They've got their silver, which they don't know, pouches back in the mouths of each sack. And they've got extra provisions, probably explaining why only one sack was opened on the way home. They've got extra provisions of probably food and water uh, for their trip home. So they get to their stop, their camp, and one guy opens his sack and surprise, surprise, the silver is there. It seems like the others haven't opened their sacks yet. Just one guy. But it's enough, it's enough to, verse 28, their hearts sank. And they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done for us? It's interesting. I, I, I think they truly mean this. But this is truer than they even know. This is exactly what God is doing. God is trying to get their attention. God is trying to put them through the ringer to get their attention and find out where they're going to land. Where they're going to land. Why are they trembling? Why are they so afraid? Because... Test number two. Are they going to write off Simeon and just go home? Are they going to write him off? It'd be easy to. It'd be easy to. Just write off Simeon. Leave him to rot. Because why? If they go back, what could easily be lodged against them? Theft. Are they going to leave him to fend for himself? Are they going to go back? That loyalty test. Very, very interesting how all of this is, is so intricately woven. So, are they going to leave him? Are they going to go back? Obviously, they intended to pay. So they go back and talk to Joseph, I mean Jacob. And they start rehearsing all this story. Uh, we, we went and, and he spoke harshly to us and, and, and you know, we, we, we had to tell him this and we had to tell him this and we told him we were one man and he said we're spies and, and, you know, blah, 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 back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then, verse 35, as they were emptying their sacks, there was each man's pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. The word means scared to death. They were scared to death. It was not, not good. Not good. And look at what their father says. And this just tells you how how desperate this situation is. Joseph is no more... Oh, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. That's not true. He's in the jail. No, 
He is no more. Because if you walk back into Egypt, you're done. You're toast. He's going to take care of you because you stole something. And they keep saying, we've got to take Benjamin. We've got to get back. I, I appreciate this. This is telling us, as well as Joseph, these guys are in it together now. They are not fending for themselves. They are loyal to one another. They are trying to do right. They have been mistreated, but they are coming together. It's not tearing them apart. It's uniting them. And they said, we've got to go back. We've got to get uh, Simeon, but we've got to take Benjamin. And Reuben comes up with one of the dingiest things I've ever seen in all my life, but he says, Dad, you can kill both of my sons if I don't bring him back. Now, whether he actually means that or not, what he's trying to do is use an extreme example of, I will take every precaution in the world to bring Benjamin back to you. Okay? It's just the way he did it. And, and rather than doing, you know, offering himself as the sacrifice, he's offering his sons, which is a little weird, but that's just another story. Also, the sad part about it is, Dad said no. Dad said, No, I will not do that. I will not do that. If I were to lose Benjamin, I would go down to my grave in sorrow. It's just not going to happen. He was, he was much more worried about an extra thing that he would lose than the son he had already lost. Son he had already lost. Fascinating, fascinating story. Fascinating story about all these questions that come up. Now, I want to take you through these questions one more time, and I want you to think about a parallel. I want you to think about a parallel. And I am basically talking about Luke chapter 15. Now, you don't have to turn there. You already know the story. Luke chapter 15, uh, we talked about the lost boy or the prodigal son or what, whatever you want to call it. I want to start with question two. And then cycle back to question one. Question two, where did you come from? If you were to ask this young man, where did you come from? He's saying, I came from a place where I wanted my own way. I wanted it my way. I wanted it any time I want, the way I want, anything I want. Uh, he went to his dad. He said, give me Give me my inheritance right now. And he went and he went into a foreign country and he wasted it on riotous living, having his own way and doing things the way he wanted to do it. Where are you from? I was from a rebellious place where I wanted things my own way. When we many of us began there, 
apart from God. Many of us began in a place where we wanted it our way. We wanted things on our timetable. We wanted things done in accordance to our will. Next question. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? How many times do you think the dad instructed this young man about right and wrong? How many times? The dad could say, didn't I tell you that this kind of lifestyle would lead to incredibly bad consequences? Didn't I tell you it was going to lead to chaos in your families and, and, and just, just the, the worst, the worst possible uh, endings to what's going on? Over and over and over again, the dad did this. And I thought about that question. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the guy? And how many times did the dad say, didn't I tell you not to do that, not to live like that, not to be wasteful like that? Live your life in usefulness, not uselessness. Question number four. What is this that God has done to us? Do you remember in Luke 15, and I thought this was an interesting parallel, why the boy had to basically sell himself as a servant? Do you remember? He ran, yeah, he ran out of money, but what was happening? Was there a famine? Look at it. Was there a famine? It's interesting. It's interesting. It was a great famine in the land. As long as the band was playing, the money was flowing, the parties were happening, he was going for broke. But when the famine came, it showed him that life was frail. A lot of times, God tries to get our attention. He tries to take away the supports that we have in this life because we're trusting in here and trusting in here and trusting in here and not trusting there. And He's trying desperately to get our attention so we won't fall on our face, we'll look up. And he did that for this young man. And he ended up being so hungry, he wanted to fill his stomach with the slop the pigs were eating. But then we go back to question number one. And question number one may be one of the most penetrating questions. Why do you just keep looking at each other? And it begs the uh, answer, do something. He came, he became in want, and then he came to himself. I love the idea, he didn't come to himself, and that did not mean, 
I'm going to blame dad because dad should have known that I was not real responsible and it was his fault. I, he shouldn't have given me the money in the first place. And, you know, he, he just, he, he gave me too much blessing and he gave me this and he gave me that and it's dad's fault. Or he could have said, it's my brother's fault. My brother didn't love me enough. My brother didn't take care of me. My brother didn't, uh, you know, submit like he needed to submit when I was doing my thing and doing this and that. No. Coming to himself said, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's what coming to yourself is all about. And there's two basic ideas. The first sign of my conscience awakening to what is really real is the admission of personal guilt. Some people know they're, they've done wrong. Their lives are in chaos. Their lives lead to a lot of pain, but they will not acknowledge it. They know that they're flat out guilty and they deserve death and somebody's got to pay that penalty. The crazy thing about it is there is good news for that because the one we stand in front of holds my life in His hands and He's the one I betrayed. Just like Joseph. His brothers bowed down to him and their lives getting grain depended on the man they betrayed. And that's what we are. Our lives depend on the man that we put on the cross. We betrayed him. To acknowledge your sin... Is only part. The second sign is putting your faith into action. He said, I will arise. I will go to my Father. He thought he had the world by the tail. But God took out his support system to bring him to where he wanted him to be, to see his great need and God's great provision. Ananias also said it to Saul. What are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What are you looking at each other for? Do something. Do something. The lessons of Joseph are very, very powerful. Very powerful. And we need to continue to study and to find out those lessons that God have, has for us in these particular stories. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these stories and the, the real, the truthfulness, the realness of them. These are not fictional. These are how you deal with people. You deal with us. 
And help us not be from places of, of wanting our way. But help us to submit. Help us to understand that you want us in a particular situation, a particular relationship with you. And you try to get our attention. Help us to be attentive. Help, help us to prepare our hearts to, to receive your word and to, to let it grow and to let it be fruitful in our lives so that we can be servants of yours. We want to reflect you. Help us and mold us into the likeness of your dear and loving Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.